Hey y'all, it's Kiss. Welcome to Ergo. What we do here is showcase the folks reshaping the culture of the city for the more equitable and creative. I'm out in LA and David and I didn't have a chance to do a full intro, so let's just get to it with the wonderful Tiffany Walden. Tiffany is the co-founder of The Tribe, a Chicago media publication. She's written for Chicago Mag, The Reader, covering the stories of young black Chicagoans. We talk about some of the challenges of building a platform at the same time as you're doing creative work, some of the limitations that she encountered being in print newsrooms around the country, and, you know, what does it take to to build up something from scratch that tells the story of young black Chicagoans? Without further ado, let's get to our conversation. We have a whole thing about uh, how every event needs optional seating. It really does. Yeah, that's that's <laughs> key. But now we're moving from just quantity to quality. To quality. That's how quality I feel about seating. school. Schools should have optional or mm-hmm. different options for seating. I, so yeah. you mean like desk chair, couch, I'm learning with standing desk. I'm learning with Morgan. She went to school up in Lake Forest and um in grammar school, she didn't have desks. She had like tables that she sat at. Mm. And so her whole I'm just starting to un- like learn a lot of things that I thought I knew about Morgan, but I didn't. <laughs> so yeah, so like that changed that changed my way of realizing how she works too, because she <laughs> had the freedom to like yeah. do whatever at a table, whereas the rest of us we were sitting at a desk. Like, is, is that what you, <laughs> you had can't when move? You, had you to... can't do anything. Yeah, um, we couldn't even get up from our desk. It was just like <laughs> you can only get up when the teacher tells you or when you raise your yeah. hand or something. Like, but that she didn't have that same like upbringing in school so yeah what did you have Dame? let's think like third grade classroom setup um we had the like the desk that you can like put your stuff in right? mm-hmm. like it was like the your little compartment space and a, a, a chair that you can like the chair was not connected fortunately mm. i had some of those in like high school yeah mm-hmm. high school our yeah, chair was, was connected like, connect, yeah. i do a little basket under the seat mm-hmm. but but the, the good real- old days was like the idea of like cleaning your desk and like that being a, an activity because I would just like pile shit. Yeah. <laughs> just, yeah. And sometimes my desk, you could put stuff in, like slide it in, and then sometimes the desk like lifted up. Uh huh. Yep. So uh-huh. That was the move. Yep, yep, yeah. Yep, yep, yep. I, I like the that. lifted up desk. Absolutely. You're like, I have this finite amount of privacy. <laughs> right. There is nowhere else in my life where I have privacy exactly. at eight. <laughs> what I put in here is my domain. Exactly. The one thing that I do think that school chairs have as an advantage, and we've talked about this before, mm-hmm. they're at the exact proper angle and height for a lean back back crack. <laughs> like it lines up right that. on the spine exactly yeah. where you yeah. need it. I've been searching. As an was, adult or as a kid? I've, I mean, I was about like five seven. By the time I was in eighth grade, I I've never been year. five seven. <laughs> <laughs> it so, it so doesn't it work for me. <laughs> no, I've said I've been five seven and was, under. Oh, okay. Or no, I don't know. Maybe it goes upwards. I don't know. We, I don't know because I haven't found another chair. Mm. When we taught, I need to go back. When to we were at Office. Uplift, I tried it and it wasn't right. It wasn't the right height. It was, it but, or I wasn't the right height. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> but this is actually like it was a daily part of my like self. Before I had the language of self care, mm. I cracked my spine every day in science class in middle school. And then I graduated. Right. And I just ever said so. Searching for the chair every day. Right. <laughs> we got to get you a chair now. <laughs> and like, for it's not a comfortable chair for any other reason. No. But it's that just, could just be sitting in the corner yeah, when you wake up in the morning. Do, you can do my back cracks. <laughs> just DIY chiropractor. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, let, let's start this. Let's thing. do it. We're so excited to be in the studio with Tiffany Wallen. Thank y'all for having me. How, um, if you could have any animal be your uh, intro walk-up music, because usually we hit them with a hawk, hit them with a, a cat of some sort, what would your animal be? Wow. 
Uh-huh. I don't know. I never thought about that. Like one of my favorite animals are, is uh, the cheetah. Mm. I don't know what it is. It's one is pretty, mm-hmm. um, yeah, really graceful. But I I don't walk, I can't do anything fast, so I'm like I admire it's aspirational. <laughs> yeah, it's like one day I could do things fast like a cheetah. <laughs> That's hilarious. <laughs> I don't know what sound they make. That's like the but they also they, they have like a like jungle yeah. cat sound. I think mm-hmm. jaguar, panthers, yeah, they all are cheetahs, the same. kind of. Yeah. yeah, that was solid. That wasn't that bad. I kind of was ready to make fun of myself. <laughs> I'm, about to, I'm about to ask for the that so yeah, I can yeah. use it. But then I came back. I was We're like, I'm back. pretty proud of that. Use it. Yeah, <laughs> I'll say somewhere between a cheetah and I also like um, birds too. Like birds chirping really early in the morning. Mm. It's, calm. it's soothing for me. Mm. Mm. Well, coming out of the confidence of that cheetah, I'm going to ask. Our other two-part question (laughs) (laughs) to warm us up. Uh, In this time, and define time how you will, how was the world treating you, and how are you treating the world? Oh, that's deep. (laughs) (laughs) Right. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know how honest I could be on this thing. Um, We'll we'll take moderate level medium honesty. We could work our way Um, up to big honesty. Very comparable to medium and big talk. I am in the middle of a struggle. Um, the tribe is going on three years old. I'm like, how can I say this in a way that's not like crazy? And it's been a very, 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 very strong learning curve mm-hmm. going from being a content maker to a business owner, um, mm-hmm. going from just being best friends with someone to owning a business with them. Um, in some sense, it becomes like a marriage very mm-hmm. quickly. <laughs> yeah. um, and I don't think either of us were prepared to for get that. Married. <laughs> right, to get married. <laughs> so quickly, so randomly. Just babies having publications. It, it literally feels like we just got up and was like, okay, let's get married today. Yeah. A lot of things I've avoided, I think, over the past few years, um, just with keeping my head down and trying to work and trying yeah. to get this this publication to wherever it needs to be or even trying to find like the perfect voice to fit like what we want the publication to be and so I've avoided a lot of just experiences or like feelings or emotions or even over the years I'm realizing that I've just kind of buried a lot of things Hmm. Um, and it seems like whenever all this stuff was in retrograde last month Mm -hmm. or whatever was going on everything imaginable just like popped back up Mm -hmm. um so I'm very much in a space of trying to figure out like how to heal from a lot of things friendships my grandma died years ago I realized I haven't really dealt with that Mm -hmm. um so yeah it's a lot of things that is going on right now I'm also in between places I lost my apartment recently Mm -hmm. um so I'm kind of bouncing around so it's it's a very like transitional weird time and challenging I'm trying to say positive yeah, yeah. super yeah. real so yeah. one thing I've been like working towards is in the midst of those times where it feels like everything is spinning I used this language a couple, couple episodes ago but the idea of like accepting growth mm-hmm. and oftentimes when we are struggling or when we are trying to grow more we don't accept the growth that we have already had so like in that vein I heard you say like working to find ways to heal and repair even if they are small victories, in what ways have you been successful in doing that learning? I'm not even sure if I've been successful yet. Mm. <laughs> okay. Um, I'm not sure what success looks like. Right. I'm still like learning mm-hmm. this as yeah, I go yeah. along. Mm-hmm. I'm trying to be a better like communicator. I think a lot of times when something is bothering me or with writing, writing is a very like lonely sport, yeah. as they say. Yeah. And it rips <laughs> um, you apart. It does. It yeah. rips you apart internally. And when you are going from having editors and having that safety net of knowing 
that like if if something goes crazy or if I fuck up, like hopefully my editor is gonna mm-hmm. catch it. Mm-hmm. That's no longer a thing. If I fuck up, that's everything is on me. Mm-hmm. Um, dealing with that and like that additional pressure of like making sure that this thing is still perfect or that that my work is near perfect because I could never be perfect. But that's a challenge, and so. Um, I'm like on a tangent. I forget exactly. No, what no, no. Right. You're, you're answering this very well, and, and it all <laughs> resonates deeply. So yeah. I just want to also give you the space, to like let some of that out too. Yeah. So. The question was about repairing mm-hmm. um, and, and accepting. And accepting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm I'm starting to accept that growing into the writer and into the businesswoman and into the friend that I need that I want to be um, takes growth. So I'm starting to accept that it takes communicating, which I'm starting to accept yeah. and, and figure out how to do that. Um, and it takes like shedding old habits too, which I'm also learning <laughs> what those habits are and then right. figuring out how to right. <laughs> yeah. how to shed them too. It's so much work. Just yeah. being like a, a human who wants to keep growing and moving forward and doing better. And the thing is you kind of, I won't say you, I don't know about you. I feel like I don't even have a choice because if I don't choose to do the work of that kind of interpersonal and internal work, what happens is... I get a month like the month you just described where yeah. it all like comes at once and it's like, well, now deal with all of it at the same exactly. time. And that's so much more. That can be so much more daunting than like one by one. But, Especially know. for us as builders because, you know, I think in the creative scape, we, we are all dealing with like we're not just taking a path that is given for us, like not just the burden of being a human and being in your 20s and trying mm-hmm. to figure out life and responsibilities and adults. Oh, we've become a millennial podcast. <laughs> but also, <laughs> but also just, you know, trying to create and create something that there is no example of, right? Mm-hmm. Like just how disorienting that is. Um, because, you know, we could make it millennial and like generate, like the institutions have failed us or if they are successful, they suck, right? right <laughs> and so, right. like, you don't have to grow as much if the institution is telling you what your path is, right? right. Like, 10 years from now, you're going to get this promotion. Oh, I don't have to worry about myself. I just have to do what my boss tells me until right. I get to that point. Right. And, like, when you remove that type of institutional pathway and we're all trying to, like, make new paths and new structures. Yeah. And it's really hard it's to heavy, do man. when you're black and from, <laughs> Hell yeah. and from the hood and yeah. from the part of the city that nobody talks about, like Saba says. And, oh, ah. And, uh, you did that on purpose. <laughs> I, I did. I always Mark that. that. Mark that. We'll put that <laughs> in. We're throwing a pivot in. Pivot! <laughs> we're um, adding a pivot in post. <laughs> right. <laughs> post pivot. <laughs> um, but, yeah, it's hard to do that when you just didn't grow up with those resources. Like, yeah. I didn't grow up in a family where... We talked about financial literacy or what we talked about, how to grow money or how to invest money or how to do this, how to do that. I didn't grow up in a career where you even saw, like, functioning media people at any point in time. Like, <laughs> the newsroom itself yeah. is the most chaotic place yeah, on earth. Yeah, and if yeah. and after a while, you become immune to it and you don't realize that you've become crazy. But <laughs> <laughs> it's just like a crazy place. So, um but even in that, you don't interact with anybody in other parts of the newsroom. Right. You know, if you're an editorial, you're just there. If you're on the breaking news team half the time, you don't even talk to people in, in another department, like in yeah. sports or in um, features or whatever. So this idea of like, okay, now you got a publication, like run it. It's like, <laughs> well, shit, I was just in the editorial room. Right. The whole, mm-hmm. Like I didn't, mm-hmm. I don't know advertising. I don't know yeah. marketing. I don't know this. I don't know that. Um, Chris so, Rock says it's like getting a TV show mm-hmm. and it's your show. He goes... You're like the best waiter, and they're like, "All right, here's a restaurant." 
Right. It's like, well, I don't know how to cook. I don't know how to <laughs> exactly. do menus. I don't know. I'm right. just good at this piece of it. I know this piece of it. Right. Now I'm trying to oversee this whole thing. Exactly. And and yeah, then um analogy. and then like folks say they they like it and they love it and they they want to see more of it. They want to see this. They want to see that. But then you don't get the support in ways that you need, which mm-hmm. obviously always is financial support. Um, you don't get the grants. You don't get this. You don't mm-hmm. get that. So that's all really frustrating too. Um, just having like it obviously be. A success in someone's eyes, right? But then you don't get a grant, right? <laughs> you don't get this, you don't get that. That's like a kick in the ass when yeah. that happens. Here's a difficult question that that relates to as opposed to the other one, right? <laughs> uh, the, because we try to uplift or 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 at least pretend to center those who are receiving it, mm-hmm. um, and so I, I hear you saying like, "There's all this support, but that support does not amount to what is needed to like help sustain or like materially support." Mm-hmm. Does like audience sometimes feel extractive for you or for either of y'all? Meaning they're extracting from us. Mm-hmm. I don't look at it that way for us in terms of our audience. Um, I, the greatest challenge for us is just blackness. Really, I mean, we want our audience um, to have our content for free. Mm-hmm. But in that, we're teaching media literacy too. Um, hmm. There's been such a disconnect between the mainstream media here in Chicago and the black community. And that yeah. de- that goes back to the red summer. That goes back to the 1800s. Yeah. That goes back to whenever. That's years and years and years and years and years of black folks not trusting the media. And we're stepping in now trying to do these interviews or trying to reach the community in a certain way. And then we're being met with like that distrust. Like, oh, don't put me on camera because... Mm-hmm. I don't fuck with the media. Or I don't yeah. do this. I don't, don't don't put my name in this shit. Like I don't <laughs> fuck with this. I don't fuck with that. And so like that. At at that point, we're now serving as like teachers. We have yeah. to teach the community how to take ownership and how to you know create their own narrative and like the importance of that and why um, supporting Black media matters. Yeah. Then on the back end, you see media falling apart every day <laughs> right it's like every now no one has media literacy exactly like every three months it's like a hundred people let go from such and such yeah. and it's like so it, to the average person that's looking in they're just like well shit y'all need another career <laughs> y'all need to figure something else out when and you're ev- like that's what i'm doing <laughs> right we're trying to do yeah. that so i never look at it as like them extracting from us i see it as an opportunity to do that like repair work and that healing work mm-hmm. um, to get <laughs> black folks back involved and invested in the media. But it, it is challenging to yeah. do that. That's that's the right answer. That was a projection for sure <laughs> on like some whole other shit. Uh, Which we should talk about at some point. I'm curious. Yeah, yeah I'm like, um, do you feel that way? Yeah, not not as much here with Ergo, but on the Let Us Breathe side. And I think because it is it is physical space and there's like material resources involved, there's just been a lot of like, hey, what are y'all doing? Or hey, when's the next thing? Mm-hmm. Or hey, there hasn't been a thing here in a while because there's like, you know, there's real no thing. Money. There's real things <laughs> going on, uh, real capacity, and like, there was just one person who like was showing up when I wasn't there in a way that was like kind of disrespecting mm. the work and the legacy and just like the, the burden of having to carry all those things um, at breathing room <laughs> in a way that like it made me then look back at other comments I've heard in a way that feels very like extract like oh this isn't mm-hmm. what I want it to be right now as opposed to like back to the, the what we were talking about before Mike of like where is space to contribute or how do I also mm-hmm. accept that like 
since we're moving at a non-institutional pace, like yeah. we're moving at the pace of humanity, like let's hold and respect that. It's a hard thing because I just feel like our community as a whole has suffered and been through so much. Yeah. So it's like we want our community to be supportive. We want our community to give back. We want our community to donate. We want them to do this. We want them to do that. But then you have to look at the systemic things that have happened over the years to where they can't do those things or to where they're hesitant to do those things even. Yeah. It's a really weird place to be in. I look at yeah. like... You know, you it seems that, you know, white folks in Chicago can get up and, and say, I'm about to start a coffee shop. And then like three months from then, the coffee shop is booming. Mm-hmm. Or like, you know, I'm about to do a pop up, whatever. <laughs> and then like the pop up happens and all of a sudden it's like booming. Yeah. And it's Come like, have cupcake making <laughs> classes at our, exactly. our social space. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> and, and so and the rest of us are like, you know, doing something for years and years and years. People that's been doing work for years and years and years and never got any you know, recognition or anything for it. Mm-hmm. Um, it's like community work for us right. in a way that, you know, white folks don't have. They don't have to do community work. They have resources. They have yeah. money. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we don't have those things. I do wonder about the the mechanisms. So some of that is obviously just generational. Like you can go to mom and dad for money that doesn't exist uh, mm. for other people. I do wonder, like, what are the? Because <laughs> it's funny for me asking this question as a white person in the room. But like, I don't know where you would get money to start a pop up bake shop either. <laughs> so like, who are, is there missing like, out on the white? Like, <laughs> like, stop hanging out with me. I gotta man. cross you gotta over go to the other meats. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but like, literally, where? I just don't know what the mechanisms for that money is. It, maybe it's just all generational. It's, but it seems think, like there's got to be something I mean, else. Some is generational, but just like, I mean, people take white people seriously. If right. a white well, man a, walks yeah. in a room and says that he about to do X, Y, and Z, then shit, he about to do X, Y, and Z. I'm yeah. going to invest yeah. in that. Some like, fire festival yeah, shit. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> like, there was no way. reason that people should have been giving that dude <laughs> they just money. Like, him so yeah. But they gave him money. He's yeah. a golden boy. Right. I, I mean, to, to I think my answer to the question goes back to the, you know, and capitalism, the, the power of the price setter. Space does not have to cost what the market price is listed at. So if you have a certain type of like in, you can get it for the low. Oh, and then like your job, right? Like a lot of white people just get overpaid for mm-hmm. shit, right? Like so, so you, yeah. you know, you, you've done the DIY, like cool shit, you know, hanging out <laughs> in the streets of, of the podcast game. But like, you know, all the people downtown, you go to like some West Loop thing on Halstead yeah. or over there, like all of them are getting drastically overpaid for whatever little if spreadsheet you, they manage. If yeah. you ever like walk around like Lincoln Park on like a normal, like I want to say like maybe a Tuesday or a Wednesday, just like in the middle of the afternoon, white folks are so happy. <laughs> Like I had a sublet in Lincoln Park last year. They're just ha- like I'm, I realized I'm walking around like there's a literal cloud over me. I'm like poor. My car has been booted. This is happening. This is happening. I'm driving Lyft. I'm doing this. I'm doing that. And everybody around me is just like jogging and happy and mm-hmm. like with their strollers and their kids. They have no worries. And being and, serviced. Yeah. Their dogs are being walked. Yeah, their clothes are being yeah. cleaned. Their bathrooms are being scrubbed. Everything. Their homes are beautiful. They don't have no curtains on their windows. You can just <laughs> peep through there. They have no fears no worries and i'm just like this is an entirely different mentality and yet everything (laughs) they are on antidepressants and they're getting divorced and their families so so there's the you know they they said it's like if you make seventy thousand dollars a year which is basically in many places in this country what it takes to have all your needs net for one person that is a certain level of happiness that you get to at seventy thousand dollars, and then above that it kind of doesn't make you happier Mm -hmm. which Everyone's like, well, let me find out. Yeah, but, yeah. but you know, there is kind of like a baseline there of like not having to worry, like just that pressure I falling do agree away. With that, though. I think if everybody had their needs met 
if everybody like was able to eat every day and not worry about how they were going to eat, mm-hmm. if everybody was like able to buy things, yeah, like know where they were going to sleep, if they knew all of these things, like there wouldn't be as many problems as there are. But like people are literally just like, I have no idea what's going to happen to me tomorrow. Yeah, that creates like inner turmoil and that stuff like comes out at some point and it's and it's put out into the world and it dictates or it guides how you deal with other people how right. you interact with other people if if i'm having a day where i don't know who i'm about to sleep i ain't ate all day like i'm not about to be friendly when i interact with somebody <laughs> i'm pissed off right. like I, why is my life like this yeah. um from a restorative framework i feel like that should be the first question we ask whenever there's a conflict mm-hmm. if you heard somebody hasn't slept or eaten for 36 to 72 hours, there's almost nothing you can hear them do where you wouldn't understand yeah. that. Right? Yeah. And it, it goes across the board. Um, Morgan and I can go for a day and we'll get snappy at each other and, and we'll just be like, did you eat today? It literally yeah. goes across the board. Yeah. That was my big move. So I was like, we can continue talking about this. Can we please make some popcorn first? Right. Which is a funny food in the middle yeah. of an argument. <laughs> but it was like... Just enjoy the show. <laughs> this is just going to be a completely different conversation. If, if you're going to argue, something. you might as well be comfortable. Absolutely. Yeah. Put on my sweats, you know. Yeah. That was a dangerous step. You could you can very easily accidentally slip into asshole posture, <laughs> eating popcorn, listening to somebody talk. You know, the whole meme, like, oh, I'm just here eating popcorn. It's yeah. like, <laughs> no, I'm talking to you, Daniel, you about my interviews. It wasn't like, you know, I'm just going to pop this popcorn while you're like screaming and for the record, the popcorn was for her. Okay. Ah, we, okay. We've also, this is completely irrelevant to this very meaningful, significant <laughs> I'm conversation learning, we're like, having. Shout out to Rose. We share very well, she and I, almost our feelings, emotions, most things. We cannot share popcorn. This is your popcorn. <laughs> <laughs> I take up too much space in the popcorn mm. arena. <laughs> so what we have started doing, yeah, I account for it. That's like This Is Us with the nacho episode. Mm. Mm-hmm. Nachos are another perfect example of something that is, so if we're going to do something like that that's on a plate, I will you demarcate the half. You have to. <laughs> and it's for me. It's so that I know. Because that, that was I'm an important part bounce. of the episode. It was like, you always take all the nachos with the cheese on it and leave me these little crumbs. The these dry, dry ass these dry ass Damn, chips. Like, su- I've yeah. never seen and the show, like, but that's Oh yeah, super that episode real. was powerful. And I was like, <laughs> Wow, like that Just, it, it like goes it transcends to, nachos. Yeah, like, shout out <laughs> to all the dry chip eaters out here. Just <laughs> getting the last of the share. That's Yeah, that's like that's like a metaphor for for all types of patriarchy. Yeah. So what we yeah. do is two separate bowls. Uh, same amount. Mm, seasoned okay. separately. Because she wants more. Anyway. All right. I, I guess. <laughs> Thank you, please. Yes. But that's conflict let's resolution. Really... I'm learning here. No, this right. is You're beautiful. teaching me. <laughs> so you said something that, that was really interesting that I would love to um, like be educated a little bit on more of the detail of. You mentioned there's like this hundred year history of like trauma to like popular information, right? If we call media that within the black community and like specifically in Chicago, but I'm sure in all cities, like, you know, that Mm -hmm. media institutions are like that. If do you have more like demarcated or like highlights of of that history? Because for me, when I think of the dynamic, I think where it came to the head was around Laquan McDonald Mm -hmm. because once we were able to see it, it was so clear that the, like, like the passive mouthpiece of institutional media, you know, the Tribune and sometimes just supporting what police say in relation to, to black violence and black death or violence upon black people and black death. They were accessories to murder, right? Like yeah. they, 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 they pushed out false up. information yeah. Yeah. and just took it as, as fact in a way that then like quells, mm-hmm. you know, the rest of the city. And I just, after that moment, I remember looking, thinking back of like, man, since I was like 15, I was hearing all these stories about people shooting at the cops 
in a way that just did not sound right mm-hmm. or or did not make sense. And I just thought like, man, niggas is wilding in, in Inglewood right now. Like, why, <laughs> why is so many people just busting at twelve yeah. cops by themselves? That makes no sense. Uh, so for me, that is like the the high point of that history of like the distrust and the trauma. Uh, do you have like more historical yeah. moments? Yeah. I mean. So I'm a nerd, and when I've worked, shout at out Welcome, to you, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yes, yeah let's thank do you for this. this being a nerd, a nerd safe space. <laughs> mm-hmm. Very specific nerdedom too. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's not just like nerd. Like I don't want your comic book shit. Yeah, 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 no, 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 no. You're no. nerd about going, like yeah, media. Like literacy. I will get, I will get into Wikipedia and be in there for like hours, oh, yeah. like just tapping on things. What, before you answer the real question, what's a recent rabbit what's, hole? What's a rap? What are your like your biggest rabbit hole? <laughs> this holes? is my favorite question in the world. Wikipedia rabbit hole. Um, I'm like, what's my most recent one? Um, Jesus. I remember one Jesus, time. that's a good rabbit yeah, yeah, yeah. hole. Well, <laughs> actually, literally, one. yeah, we were looking up. Um, <laughs> so sorry. <laughs> we were looking up The Last Supper one time, and it, like, sent me down this complete, like, long rabbit hole about, like, how the 16th Chapel, like, painting and stuff was, mm-hmm. like, it might be fabricated and all of this hmm. stuff. It was, I, I can't remember exactly. Yeah. <laughs> I can't remember exactly what it is, but that's one. Um, I think they should have called it his last supper because the rest of them kept eating. Yeah, they did. Like for, for, for a while. <laughs> the last supper. <laughs> like we have dinner <laughs> all in between people would have dinner. Yeah. <laughs> Just whitewashing all the suppers. His, his last supper. <laughs> And then he came back and presumably ate again. So right. it was just his last supper for a while. It's mostly been religious things because um, Morgan's doing a lot of research for um, a documentary that she wants to do at some hmm. point. And so I'll look it up and then I'm like down this place and I'm like, oh, this is why this is this way. Yeah. Or, this mm-hmm. is why we're taught this, whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, One time I spent like two days looking up the entire history of the English language. In every place, and, then, and that led to four days of the entire history of the Roman Empire. One time, I looked up the origin of um, hell comes from, mm-hmm. and we realized that hell is like a term that was from one of the. I think it might have been Latin or something, but like just figuring out like where how hell became like in mm-hmm. the Bible, mm-hmm. and whether that was the original word mm-hmm. in the Bible, or did someone translate it right. into these things? So looking at the different translations of like hell, and then that like led down this rabbit hole of realizing that different translations depending on who was translating the book Mm -hmm. or who was creating their own book whether it was King James or whether it was this or it was that words got interpreted differently and then it became a different meaning once it did that so then we were trying to like trace down what the original word was in the Bible so that that was like a whole that's an afternoon (laughs) I want to like ask more questions about this (laughs) I don't know if we should like go deeper in the hole. Maybe we should just do. I'm not. You wanna, for, let's do like a one, and we're, you don't have to be an expert, a hell expert. Yeah, I'm here. like I'm not a hell expert. I mean, <laughs> I, mean I, I just, I hate to always be this guy. I grew up Christian, mm-hmm. right? So like, I want to come to it from that. Like, I feel like I, I am critical from within. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, just like the way we have just like passed over, reconciled this interpretation thing of how this book that is sacred has many different versions. Those are direct contrast and contradiction. And many different writers, and we don't know who these writers are. And at the end of the day, it is still a man-made book. So that's always been my thing. I grew up in Catholic church. I went to a Catholic school. I went to um, St. Catherine, St. Lucy. Okay, all right. Um, so you know what you're talking about. Yeah. And so or, just, well, <laughs> you know what they were talking about. I know what they were talking about. <laughs> you know how to talk about it. <laughs> uh, and so like seeing, like they had a whole separate books in the Catholic church. Right. I can't remember the name of them, but there were like different books that you looked in and like read as if it were the Bible. So that's mm. when early as a kid, I started realizing like, 
they got other books that we supposed yeah. to be reading. Like, what is this? And so for me, I've always just kept in mind that like somebody had to write this stuff down. When they wrote it down, it was left up for their interpretation. Yeah. And then it was translated to all these different versions at some point. But I tried to have this conversation with my dad like two weekends ago and he was not for he it. Was he was just like, well, God, like <laughs> God told card. him to write this down this way. And I'm like, that's cool. But copy edit we don't know <laughs> he wrote it down that way. Like <laughs> we don't know what this who wrote anything. So either dad really wants to talk about how God might and the Bible might be different or God or dad really doesn't. Well <laughs> you but, there's no oh, like if you talk, there. once you once you reach a certain age in, in blackness, like most people won't take any new anything about the Bible. It's just like Jesus saved me and this is it. They won't have any discussion about it. And my dad is now at that point where it's like, mm. someone, had, someone <laughs> had a joke that when a black guy hits 60, he automatically becomes a reverend. Yes. <laughs> if you just like in the mail with your AARP card, you Either get a reverend. Either that or a deacon. You yeah, yeah, yeah. All of, deacon. He, he been in church for 50 years. <laughs> right. Come, come right he in. He didn't with go position. to church all that time. And then now he's Deacon Walden. So. All right, that, that was a great rabbit hole. The ultimate rabbit hole. I'm ready to bring us back to what got us there. I don't even there. know what got us there. I do, I'm here. From the depths of hell. <laughs> we went literally to the depths of hell. But I, you brought up the, that 100-year like trauma oh, of yeah, yeah. the black That's community we relationship about. to media. And yeah, so like... It, hope y'all enjoyed that. Mm-hmm. I started off by saying I am a nerd. Because I'm a right, nerd, right, 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 I go into the Wikipedia. archives. <laughs> but no, I used to be in the newsroom, so I would read archives. <laughs> um, so when I, I used to live in um, Abilene, Texas. I worked at a newspaper down there. <laughs> um, in the middle of nowhere. I didn't really have much else to do, so I would, like, go and look at the archive um, of the papers, like the physical archives yeah. of these papers. Um, was it on microfilm? Or no, it was, like, going actual... into a room wow. and, like, literally just opening a drawer and, like, physical copies of the mm-hmm. paper was oh, there. Because wow. uh, it was a small paper. Their, their circulation may have been, like, 20,000. Wow. Their population was 20,000 down there. Long story short, like, I would look at old, like, newspapers and see... One, I'm looking at just what they were talking about in a different region, which is Texas. Also, West Texas, not even like normal Texas. Yeah. <laughs> and then whatever normal which Texas is. An oxymoron. Is. <laughs> right. <laughs> and then realizing like what it's like to be black in West Texas. And then realizing now that we're in 1800s, early 1900s, and people are still like into cotton and still into mm-hmm. all of these things. Mm-hmm. So on the front of the newspaper, they would just straight be like, Negro lynched or whatever or nigga lynched or like they would just put that in the paper that made me like realize like oh I wonder like if Chicago Tribune was doing this same thing back in the day Chicago Tribune archives used to be free and available and ready online hmm. they're not anymore because hmm. people would, like you no, right they, <laughs> they like oh no, like, she's right, on this, this site too this long like <laughs> let's put this paywall up on her it's actually I can get on for free that's, right. that's what we were talking about before <laughs> and so I would look at the Tribune site or whatever look at old papers and just see how their headlines would be about black things happening too or like crime throughout the years and still today when you're a reporter in the newsroom and the police sent over like a crime report that's what you report off of so you're trained to um write up the police report so if the police are inherently <laughs> uh biased or if the police are abusing their authority or their power right. when they're in black communities naturally these police reports are going to be told from their perspective and that perspective is going to be that the black person is in the wrong so these are the stories that we are trained as reporters to write right. because the police quote unquote are the official source and that's the problem with media because a police report doesn't tell a whole story Right? it's not even 
into an investigation. It's literally just what the police saw when they got there. It doesn't even tell their whole story. Exactly, yeah. exactly. So that's how we got in a situation with Laquan McDonald and everything else because they, they, you could write anything on a police report because you just got to turn. It's just something that you have to file. <laughs> yeah, and you're the police. So you just got to turn that in and whoever was with you, I guess, got to sign off on it and call it a day. But if you really don't take the time to unpack what, what's happening and interview everybody that's involved, you never get down to the real story and you never get to the point of Laquan McDonald where a video is uncovered and all these other yeah. things. So imagine how many police reports a breaking news desk like Chicago um, gets every day and every three months you hear people laying off all of these people. So right. how many reporters can really sit down mm-hmm. and go through each one of these police reports and really do an in-depth like right reporting on like what actually happened so Let people are go out and interview people exactly you know? so they're just writing up whatever the fuck comes <laughs> to yeah. the breaking news desk and that's again why uh, essentially the black community doesn't trust the media the same way they don't they don't trust the police they because are the police, yeah you are the police you're reporting what the police is telling you happened and not asking any questions so i always found that to be really troubling but you know when you're you're in a newsroom and you're trying to get paid <laughs> and, yeah. and eat. You guys, you got to do what your editor tells you to do. But once I got out of the newsroom, I got to see it from like a different perspective, a different lens. Yeah. So let's go before you got out of the newsroom. Let's go how you ended up in the newsroom in the first place. Where was kind of formal journalism? Where, where did that enter into your life? And at what point did you decide this is a path I want to pursue? I don't know how journalism ended up in my life. When I was a kid, I wanted to, um, I was really into music. So I was a kid that would like sit in the house and like put on the bodyguard soundtrack and literally <laughs> before I would nineteen ninety two I was like four years that's old. Whitney. <laughs> yeah, that's Whitney. Let's Houston. see what was the track names on the sound on the bodyguard. Oh, it's soundtrack. I have nothing. I could tell you off the top. I have right. nothing. Um, that's track two. Let's I'm every woman. That's three. Track one is um, oh, I wow. will always love you. Okay. I didn't know I'm every woman. Um, you're three actually. for three. Track four is uh, run to you. Bang. Five is queen of the night. Mm-hmm. Six is uh. Jesus loves me. Wow, mm-hmm. this is amazing. And then after that, it's like some. I think Kenny G or somebody yeah, has some yeah. songs. And then you got the that young All Kenny G Aaron Neville collab. Yeah, that, that was <laughs> that was smart to do. They put the six Whitney tracks. Up yeah, top. they put six up top, and then they like and it was like, let, yeah, let's do whatever yeah. down here. But what year? What year? Did that <laughs> you know, out? Kenny G was incensed at that track. But a lot of people way. love Kenny G. My mom loves. Ninety two so. is what I'm saying. Yeah, ninety two, ninety two, ninety two. You're right. So yeah, I'm like I'm like four or five years old, and I would be sitting in the living room putting this CD on and like singing it at full voice <laughs> to myself. So I've always been a weird kid. No, um, that's fantastic. I guess that, <laughs> so this is just a, a tangent now that you, I guess that movie and soundtrack is what made Whitney Houston. The, oh yeah. The, like she was obviously she a huge was already phenomenon. Pushed, yeah. By the time when Bodyguard came out, it was like, you you can't fuck with but, me now. Yeah. Like, yeah. Cause now I'm the star of this movie. And like, I didn't, I never saw the movie actually. And oh. I didn't listen to the soundtrack. I mean, obviously I know the singles, but that makes so much sense of like, because people didn't, the it wasn't sure stuff. if she was like gonna be able to act. That's mm-hmm. what everybody. You're always like, mm, she gonna act, um, but yeah. they weren't sure. And also, a lot of black folks wasn't really rocking with Whitney. I can give you the whole Whitney Houston like documentary. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of uh, folks weren't rocking with her because they felt that her music was whitewashed. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So it was really like the bodyguard, and I think either right after that she did the. Um, the national anthem at the Super Bowl, uh, like those mm, two, those that was like a really mm-hmm. big pivotal moment for her mm-hmm, too. Mm-hmm. So you're four years old. And you're, you're writing a, a full in depth profile on Whitney Houston, as <laughs> right? Happens, clearly, clearly. <laughs> um, and so I just I've always been into music. I liked music videos. I was a writer, so I would like I was very imaginative as a kid. I was mm-hmm. like in the house by myself, just me and my grandma. And where was this? 
on the west side. I grew up in North Lawndale. Okay. On, um, well, my grandma lived on Lexington and Pulaski, and I, my mom lived on Fifth. We shared a backyard, so oh, I just wow. literally ran from one house really? to the next house. That's, yeah, that's great. Yeah, my grandma owned both of the buildings. Um, so your mom grew up. Shout over out there to too. grandma. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. My mom grew up over there too. My mom and her next brother, and then um, prior to those two, her their two older brothers. When they first came up here from the south, they lived near Cabrini Green area, I believe, because she went to she went to Wayman AME Church, and that's in Cabrini Green. So they lived somewhere around there, and mm-hmm. then they went south for a little bit, and then she came to the west side and bought a house in the 50s. <laughs> My grandma's um, house was, like, on the alley on Lexington Street yeah. and on Fifth Avenue. Um, we were, like, the second house off of the off the block. It was, like, a big co-way building on... Um, Karloff and Fifth Avenue. Hmm. So yeah, as a kid, my backyard was yeah. just like, I just did whatever <laughs> back green. there. Yeah, yeah. Um, so you're on your own mostly. You're writing. You're using your imagination. Yeah, music videos helped a lot, and like I was very much into like MTV, VH1, and all of that stuff. And I would always see like Danielle Smith and them on there talking about music, and they would put like the little journalist word underneath it, and I would be like, oh, that's what it. Like that journalists talk about music uh, all day, like. Yeah. And so then after a while, I I started reading like Vibe magazine and stuff like that. I used to read Nickelodeon magazine because I'm a geek. I just loved Vibe because it was like them telling stories in our voices, though, and also like telling stories about music that I hadn't really seen. A lot of mainstream like <laughs> media wasn't really talking about hip hop and stuff at the time. And so, yeah, I just kept following them. And then I got to high school. I went to Providence St. Mill, also on the west side. Oh, shut out. One of my teachers who I was really close with. And we still talk to this day. She noticed that I was like a really good writer. And so she um, like created a curriculum just for me oh, for wow. in a creative writing class. So I was like writing and stuff with her. She wanted to be a journalist when she was in college, but she had mm. a kid and she ended up not going down that route because journalists don't make money. <laughs> so she was like training me She's to like, be a I journalist. I see potential in you to not make money. Right, basically. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, but in high school, I wanted to be an engineer, an audio engineer, because again, I wanted to do music. And then I realized that engineers are smart <laughs> <laughs> in ways that I am not. A college trip quickly shut down engineering for me. <laughs> so I was like, no, I can't do that. So, um, so then my teachers was like, you should be a journalist. So I just started going in that route. Mostly writing about music at first or, or wider range? In high school, I still wasn't really writing journalism stories. I, I went to um, Marquette University, had a um, like a journalism camp. Mm. And that was my first time actually writing a news story. And that was mm. like junior year going into senior year in high school. Me and my friend, Mikea, we went up there and you had to put together like a newspaper and they assigned you stories. And my story was like gentrification of Milwaukee. And I was like, that sounds like something I've heard somebody say here. Yeah. And then I realized that like, oh, the same thing happening here is happening up there. And like mm. that opened my eyes to like what journalism was too. Because I saw it on like a different level. That same, mm. that, that black communities experience things all over. Like the same things all over. Um, and then I got into Northwestern somehow and went to Medill. <laughs> And that's when you I really begrudgingly. started. You've like <laughs> regularly undermined ability throughout this. This is like a story of someone who has accomplished things to the yeah. accept growth thing. I'm just throwing that out there. Thank you for I'm noticing just, that yeah, yeah, and for yeah. bringing that up. Yeah, I always make fun of that, though, um, just because I wasn't like the top of my class. Mm-hmm. And my school was very much about like 
numbers. It was like if you mm-hmm. were number one, number two, they expected you to go to whatever school. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Everybody else was just whatever. So yeah. when I got into Not Northwestern, yeah, so, yeah, yeah. When I got into Northwestern, it was just a shock because um, I wasn't like expected mm-hmm. to get into this school. So that's why I always like make that joke about yeah, Northwestern. Yeah. But mm-hmm. that was when I like started to really like understand and learn what journalism was. Hmm. And from there... I guess the rest is history. I, I interned at Ebony, Ebony Magazine right after school. I was thrilled to be there because I had never been inside of Ebony Magazine. This is when mm-hmm. they still had the building. Yeah, yeah. And so I had always heard stories that everything in there was still the same from like the 70s and 80s and stuff. <laughs> and it literally was like it was like orange carpets. <laughs> <laughs> like it was crazy. And so, but it, it felt good to be in that, that building. And, yeah. And just realize like who all had walked through these yeah. halls and these doors and like to do that every day was like really cool. To the point of like media legacy, like that is one that I think is starting to be, you know, from an archive perspective, I know the Arts Bank has those those archives. But, but they're, they're, one of the most important, like, Chicago media legacies, the, the way we talk about the reporter and the defender, like, understanding on a national scale what those publications did. Like, that's a story that has been told, but I think needs to be told more. Yeah, Ebony's, uh, John, John H. Johnson's story should definitely be told. Gosh, I'm blanking on her name, and I'm so, so sorry. She just recently wrote a book about um, Johnson Publishing, she used to work at Ebony, too. I'm so sorry that I'm forgetting your name. I think the Sun-Times wrote about it when it came out. Yeah, I think I found the article. Let's see. Let's see if Sun-Times throws me behind the paywall. They probably will. You might have and to they did. incognito it because mm, mm-hmm. that's my cheat. That's a good move. <laughs> Porn and free articles. <laughs> incognito, a little less of an ergo. <laughs> I didn't know we was being that honest today, let's guys. Let's, let's keep it a buck. <laughs> if that's the case, though, yes. Incognito is, is everyone's best friend. <laughs> I it's like, oh, I got shit to do today. I'm going to read me a few, right. few thought pieces, <laughs> give me a few clips. <laughs> oh, my God. This is a me I just day. I want to say I love Incognito. <laughs> incognito has yeah. saved lives. I have you a you day. That's what you mean. I can't find, the, can't name find of, the name of the book. Right, I'll look it up. I wanted to say that there should be like more told about John H. Johnson because I think he started that that magazine like by taking out a loan or something, or he sold his mama's couch or something like that for five hundred dollars, <laughs> and he like started this whole thing. There are things with the tribe that we want to do business-wise that a lot of people were telling us was impossible. Hmm. And I started, like, reading up on John H. Johnson and, like, Johnson Publishing. I'm like, if John H. Johnson did it, it's not impossible. Like, mm-hmm. and, right. and then I looked up Vibe and, Vi- and Quincy Jones them did, like, a, a similar thing. They had different brands and, and arms. And Quincy Jones like made Vibe? Yeah, Quincy Jones, Quincy Jones and uh, uh, Yo, somebody Jones else. I can't amazing. remember. I'm blanking. But yeah, Quincy Jones is one of the founders of, of uh, <laughs> Quincy Jones. You did you watch this documentary? Yeah. On? Oh, it was so here, here's a little confession. I also watched it on shrooms. Oh, it what was, was that like? It was amazing. It <laughs> was ne- tripping me out. I've never done shrooms. I'm just I'm like, a, I'm a, I'm I was big low advocate. key afraid of them. <laughs> I'm a big advocate. Usually what I figure out is what people are afraid of, of shrooms, is much more associated with acid. Mm-hmm. I've oh, not done acid. Oh, okay. But they're the, both hallucinogens. They right? are. But one is something that grows out the earth. The other is a chemical compound yeah, that's created. Yeah, because I'm like acid. You know, like, they say sometimes you'll like just 
fuck around and like have a trip randomly yeah, yeah and i'm yeah, like yeah, a random trip back. like that's how kind of fun. this is the funniest conversation <laughs> <laughs> all right now, <laughs> yeah yeah i can't talk about you are a fascinating person yeah let's talk about the tribe right now let's get that story so so you're you're talking about you know there being things that you were being told were impossible and then you're like well here's an example of someone doing something that was quote impossible what are some of those things that you were told they were impossible that have turned out to not be? And then is there anything that you were told was impossible that you're like, oh, maybe that's impossible? Because <laughs> you were talking about some of the challenges right now, yeah. Um, I've, I'm now at the point where I don't think too many things are impossible. It took me a while to get here. It took Morgan screaming at me for two years to get here. But I don't think too many things are impossible now. But, you know, most people just see us as like um, – you know, a news site or a news organization or whatever. But we see ourselves as like a, a brand and a production house. And that's kind of where Morgan's expertise comes in at because <laughs> she's a filmmaker. So we see ourselves legitimately getting into like films, getting into um, TV. I'm a writer. I want to write books and stuff one day. So we see ourselves getting into stuff like that. We want to have all of these different arms associated with yeah. uh, the trial. We also see ourselves teaching and things too. One of the big things and challenges that we've come across is a lot of folks in our community are self-taught because, we again, we don't have resources mm. to go to school for journalism or to go to school yeah. for these things. Because we're all self-taught, we have to learn things just as we go along and, as, and for photos or for writing or whatever. So photography, for example, a lot of the photographers out now when they shoot their photos, they're used to shooting them outside or they're used to like cropping folks really you know, mm-hmm. tight, that doesn't work well in print. You know, right. it's certain things that, like, you're doing on social media mm-hmm. that fly that won't translate to right. print if mm-hmm. we're getting ready to do something in print. We might see a photographer and we love their work, and then we work with them, and it's like, well, shit, <laughs> now yeah. we can't put this in print. Cause, it's for a different medium. Yeah, yeah. So um, it's so many different workshops and stuff that we want to get into, too, and we're already doing workshops with Free Spirit Media mm-hmm. on the Shout west out. side. Um, we share a space with them. We do joint workshops with their uh, cohort about like storytelling and um, ethics and all of these things too. Ethics is a really big thing because in, in the internet age, people doing whatever on the internet and calling it a day. Um, so like r- teaching people about journalism ethics and even documentary ethics, which some things are similar, some things are a little bit different. Yeah. But those are things that we want to get into too with the tribe is like teaching and having workshops. And I mean, ideally in our mind, if 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 life ever works out <laughs> in the way that, it, <laughs> that we want it to, the tribe would have its own space and it would just be a space where you can come and like learn mm-hmm. Um media we will host regular workshops there people can just come in and out it could be like just a communal space fingers crossed on the west side um where we're literally just doing the work um yeah and being in the community and and putting out that that media that reshapes the narrative so that's where we see it going that's what we want it to be but a lot of folks that we've crossed paths with would just be like oh you can't have a, a s corp and a non-profit or you can't have a business and you can't be media people and doing documentaries and doing books and doing this and doing that like yeah. but you really can so i want to get back to before we got here we, we got to do like our journalism question and and like the thing around ethics is is something i want to touch back to but i think what feels really central to to all of this story is you and morgan's relationship mm-hmm. so i want to go back to like when did the bond become as you know concrete or, or or impactful to your life as it is because it keeps getting revisited like that this relationship is at the core of so much of this work um yeah i met morgan um at northwestern 
my sophomore year. I knew of her freshman year because at Northwestern there's only six mm-hmm. black people there. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> everybody knows each other. You're like, I've done my research. <laughs> right, I'm like, oh yeah, I, I know. I've seen that person. Yeah. Um, but <laughs> Ooh. so we pledged together. Um, <laughs> I don't... I'm like trying to figure out how deeply to go into this you, story. You like pledged to hold to journalism. So <laughs> right. what you pledged. I pledged to cover this story faithfully. <laughs> right. Well, we pledged together at Northwestern, a.k.a. I remember one of the first moments that I realized Morgan was cool was, um, again, music is like a really big thing to me. So when I got to school, I didn't really meet people that like knew music for real. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, people may know like whatever song is out right now or like they may know like an old, like one oldie or two. But I think like Morgan like one day randomly played like Come Live With Me Angel, mm-hmm. Marvin Gaye or something. And I was like, oh, this this chicken knows like real ass music. Yeah, like yeah, she yeah. she knows some shit. And so she was Can the, list the track list. Yeah. Was, we kind of skated over that. That, that was, was super fucking impressive. <laughs> not only knew the songs, but had them in order. Because, yeah, I, yeah I've, I've listened to that <laughs> a billion times. She would know like the ad-libs to songs too, which was crazy to me. Because I'm like, I was I would always be a person that would like know ad-libs and shit. And like, <laughs> yeah. and it was like very important to her to know these ad-libs. Um, so that kind of... Do kinda, you have a historically favorite ad-lib? Is there an ad lib that comes to you um, no pressure that's hard hitting journalism <laughs> right <laughs> I can't think of what I'm talking about here y'all I'm not that's prepared fine. I right, was that's prepared cool. to go that's here cool. but like cool. Gucci Mane bricks and okay, shit like okay, that okay. anything Migos back then okay okay um, the dream was like really I was thinking like was a Marvin Gaye ad lib or something I was like oh, uh, he was oh. Ad-libbing. I mean he was riffing off in the yeah in the he back. was yeah ah! We hit it off, and um, Morgan's very much like a person who could put together like whole grand things in her mind, and then like can is actually able to communicate it and like assign people to do shit. I'm not that person. Two very different <laughs> skills that usually don't yeah use yeah the, same the, the assigning right. So like <laughs> she, I was a person at least back then. I don't know if I'm still like that, but she would like do a step. And then I would like remember the step, and then she we would like do it together, hmm. so she can like see what it look like when it's more people doing it. Mm-hmm. Um, so we always just kind of had like that working relationship. Um, <laughs> I wrote off Morgan like early on because she grew up up north, mm-hmm. and so like mentally, any the word up north, or like just north like, side yeah. or north north burbs north. She grew up in the north burbs. Yeah, Lake mm-hmm. Forest is um, yeah. That's that's deep. She didn't grow yeah. up in Lake Forest. She went to school there. I remember when I first found out she went to school. Like I had no idea what Lake Forest was because again, I'm just I'm from the West Side. Mm-hmm. I ain't never been nowhere. I had never been past Cabrini Green. Mm-hmm. So the Evanston was an, in, an entire yeah, Marquette, culture shock. Marquette was international. <laughs> right, right. It was like oh, I'd have made it now. I'm in Milwaukee. <laughs> like, <laughs> like I'm, I'm in now. You treated Summerfest like people treat Can. <laughs> right. I was at Summerfest like, on like a yacht. <laughs> I was on a little thing that like the whatever that little uh what's the little ski thing's called? The lifts. They had like, yeah, a, they had, like yeah. a lift that went across the, the whole part. Yeah. yeah, I was like, oh I'm here, I made it, y'all. Um, That's great. I told my mom, I was like, Yeah, I met this girl, she's really cool. Um she went to school in Lake Forest. Mom was like, Lake Forest? <laughs> I have no idea. Yeah. So I'm like, Yeah, like Lake Forest. Like that, that I think that's up north. And she's like, Is she rich? And I'm like, um, I don't know. Like, I, I don't think so. We didn't she's black. Networks. Yeah. <laughs> right. She's black. I'm like, she's black. I don't think she's rich. Um, but, Making a guess. <laughs> right. And so I kind of at that moment I was like, Oh, she might be rich. But then like after a while, like once I really, really got to know her, I realized that like our families are very similar and that we grew up in very similar ways. And 
Um, <sighs> she's not rich. And she's not rich. <laughs> so we can be friends now because she's not rich. Um, you hear that rich people trying to be friends? <laughs> uh-uh. Let's get out of here. That's what um, you can't donate to the tribe, though. All right, you can donate to the tribe at any time. We accept all. <laughs> we'll be your fake friend. <laughs> <laughs> right? She's helped me grow in ways, too, that I don't think I would have like done on my own. Um, she'll call out shit and... Just like y'all, like y'all saw that, like I was doing whatever when I was talking about Madea, mm-hmm. she'll call some shit out really quickly and just mm-hmm. be like, "Stop, you know, whatever." Mm-hmm. So a lot of like self awareness and stuff I have now is because of her, because <laughs> I, I just, you know, I just didn't look at things or whatever that way. Just yeah. a little bit of a fast forward, then call this the Bell Biv DeVoe moment. I may or may not explain <laughs> that. When did y'all like say, "All right, we have this relationship. We complement each other well. We like, you know." can balance each other's weaknesses. We have similar strengths. When was the moment like, all right, we're going to apply this to an entity that that became the tribe? So I was in Orlando at the Sentinel Steel, and she was in Milwaukee at the time. She was working at um, 371 Living large. Right, because Milwaukee is canned. Out out there in the key. (laughs) (laughs) Doing it big in the key. And... We would like, we still talked every day, like, cause I worked the 5 a.m. shift. And so around when I would be taking like my lunch break, she would just be getting up to go to work. Or around when I would be getting off work, she would really just be getting on her lunch break. So mm-hmm. I would call her or whatever. Just like realizing that we weren't really living out what we thought our dreams were. <laughs> um, the breaking news desk was like really traumatic for me, just having to read mm-hmm. these crime reports every single day. And Florida has like open public record laws or whatever so you pretty much can get whatever and so we would get access to an unredacted report or something like that and just like reading those details after a while it just of all those to... florida men right because florida man has been real <laughs> for me for so long so i felt very seen when i saw that in atlanta that was that's my favorite episode oh my god um i've written about florida man i've personally met florida man oh no <laughs> <laughs> um i had started doing like some freelancing at the time and also had been doing like a little bit of creative writing and stuff. We had like an idea for um, a show at some at some point, and I was like trying to write. At some point, she was just like, you know, you should move back home and actually do what you love. I was like, you know what, fuck it, yeah, I'll do that. We still didn't know that we were doing a tribe when we did that. It was literally like we're gonna come back home and just like be writing together and like <laughs> figuring out what we were gonna do. But then she got up and she decided once I moved back, which was crazy, I like literally just got up and moved back. I didn't have any money saved, anything. I was just like 26 or something. I was like, yeah, I'm just going to get up and move like it's whatever. So I've learned my lesson from that, too, which is another story. Or we can get into that, too. But um, I moved back up here and then she was like, you know, I'm going to go on a sabbatical. And she like got up and left and like went to D.C. And I'm like. I literally moved back here. Rich, rich girls, man. What right, these, these rich up north girls. I'm like, what the hell? See, I'm, so, I'm gonna take a gap here from our business. Plan. Right, and so she like got up and went to DC, and I couldn't. I mean, I couldn't knock her because yeah. um, I had the opportunity to like leave Chicago for real. I don't know if it's for We're real. We're joking, also, Morgan. Yeah, yeah, she this, knows. She knows. You, knows. Can, <laughs> you have the autonomy to go to DC and rent yourself. <laughs> I might not have earned the right to make those jokes. So I take it back. <laughs> He's cool, Morgan. He's cool. Let him make it. She really hadn't left this area. Being from, um, she's actually from the Waukegan area, so that's not too far from Milwaukee. So yeah. it was literally like she was still around family, still around all of this stuff. So going to DC was really good for her. And after I got over my BS, I supported it. <laughs> um, and then she came back. She was only there for like three months. I was writing for um, the Chicago Reader, and then the Chicago Tribune discovered me through. I forget if it was the reader or something I did with Fake Shore Drive, but 
Then they came and asked me to write for them and then Chicago Magazine and all these people. So I started writing more and more here and building a name for myself. And so when she came back, you I would be like, choose. yeah, I would be like, well, shit, y'all need a photographer. Like, let Morgan do it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so she like kind of learned photography as we were going along because she <laughs> really, you know, as a filmmaker, she wasn't like shooting photos. <laughs> and we just was kind of doing building a team in that way. And um, folks started approaching me after a while because I would always pitch like black stories. I would be like, you know, I want to do this story about bad boy radio. I want to do this story. I want to do this story. So people started approaching me and saying like, you know, I want to build a publication with you. I didn't feel comfortable like doing anything with anybody else. Like Morgan would have to be a part of it. Mm. Um, Just because she's someone I know, she's someone I trust. I know that she's a visionary. I know how smart she is. So if I was going to do something, I wanted to do it or have her be a part of it in some way. Long story short, a couple of those um, ideas didn't work out. And then she was like, well, shit, let's just do our own thing. And I'm like, I don't know how we're going to do this. Like, we ain't got no money. And we figured it out or she figured it out. By the grace of God, David, like, came out of nowhere. We were at, like, a a party with friends. And he walked up and was like, if y'all ever need a website, let me know. (laughs) And we were like... Yeah, we was like, like what? <laughs> that was like December. We had our first meeting in like January, and I had of what my, year is this? January twenty seventeen. Okay, um, I had I had a sublet in Lincoln Park. I invited people to this to my house. This is when you were mad at how happy people were. Huh? This is when you were mad. Oh at yeah, this is when I was mad were? at how yeah. happy white people are. I'm just like, this is I've never experienced this in my life. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, I just have never felt that like level of Fucking happiness in my joy. life. <laughs> I'm like, what is this? <laughs> how do you feel this way? Joy and exercise. <laughs> that shit out of here. <laughs> Literally, folks came to the so, house. Okay, I got to tell one wild story about that. Yeah. So my grandfather's a wild guy. Uh, him and my mom <laughs> didn't necessarily have the best relationship. So. They were at a wedding away, um, <laughs> and, like, they had a tough night. And so she came back, and she was like, I'm not going to let my daddy get me down, and, like, I'm going to be all right. And somebody from the other family asked her, like, how you doing? She was like, I'm wonderful. <laughs> and then he said to his wife, she ain't wonderful. <laughs> she just average. She just regular. Why she lying to people? She ain't wonderful. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> so I was, like, channeling my inner grandfather. That's she ain't wonderful. <laughs> Ass joy, right? <laughs> I'm sorry. Oh, I'm happy over that. <laughs> so this this sublet meeting. Yeah. So um, I feel folks, like we're getting close to the Bell Biv DeVoe moment. We are. I'll explain it. Folks came. <laughs> <laughs> folks came over, and who I thought was going to be like a part of the team or whatever. Everybody didn't necessarily stay. Everybody didn't rock with the vision in the beginning. But from January to February 15th, 2017. <laughs> So David put that whole site together. Yeah, that's quick as hell. Yeah, he put that whole site together in that time, and we had we launched with eight stories, and one of those stories was Another Life, which was um a short doc series that Morgan did, hmm. and it's currently still doing. We have more episodes coming out soon, but yeah, yeah, that's how we launched. This is a nonlinear process because, like Damon said earlier, you're not working at an institutional pace. Mm-hmm. Um, but in our minds, we were. We were like mm-hmm. dead ass serious. It was like, this is our deadline. Mm-hmm. Things need to be whatever. Yeah. We, we like weren't sleeping. We were like, we would be, and again, I'm subletting a place, so I really only had one bedroom. We were like all, me, Morgan, and David would just be in my bedroom, like mm-hmm. laying on the floor working. I think the night before we launched, we didn't sleep. Like mm-hmm. We were taking it very seriously. Um, the name The Tribe came from Morgan because uh, she wanted to have like a communal feel. 
we wanted to get the domain for it and the yeah. domain for the try regular spelling was uh like thousands and thousands of dollars so we were like well shit we're gonna put another i in there mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. that was two dollars <laughs> <laughs> it came together like really really quickly and in our minds it was really serious but at the same time we didn't think that like people were gonna connect to it as quickly as they did like by March, people like were writing articles about this new thing to try whatever, and I had relationships with people in the media too, so I think that that helped mm-hmm. already. Just from we had been vetted to some extent because like Morgan right. and I also had been freelancing with people, so people knew like our names, they knew our work, they mm-hmm. knew that this was going to be like real journalism, but it just picked up really really fast, and we weren't really prepared for that as <laughs> business owners, yeah. Um, as content creators, you know, it's like shit. People like our content, whatever, but. Then it's like, how do we catch up on a business end? Of course, as much or as little as you want to share. Like, this isn't the the behind the music of this. Um, <laughs> but, you know, to, to that point, what are some of the lessons you've learned on the business owning end, let's say in the last six months to a year, that if there was someone who was starting a publication now, you would say, make sure you do these three things. Save money. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and those conversations that we were like joking about leaving our jobs when she was in Milwaukee and I was in Orlando, if we had to took that time then to like really start saving money or at least to create a, a joint account or something or whatever way to make sure that we're both saving money toward this thing, that would have been great. But trying to run a business and trying to eat <laughs> and pay rent and live is very, very, very hard. There was a moment where I was like, freelancing i was driving lifts and doing tribe i had got booted a bunch of times (laughs) so like i lost money during that i had to get a part-time job my part-time job was weird i was working 5 a.m hours again Mm. so trying to do 5 a.m hours and do the tribe and freelance like everything is literally about like when you when you don't have savings or when you didn't plan out to really do something it's like okay i still have to pay my rent now right how am I going to make ends meet before rent is due? And so it literally drives you into this like crazy place of like, mm-hmm. you're literally working and like not sleeping and like depressed all the time because you're trying to figure out how to make money. And that affects your mental health. And then your mental uh, capacity affects your work. Because right. if you're not healthy mentally, it's hard to write. At least for me, if my mind isn't right, it's really hard to do that. And then that affects our work and then that affects what right. people see. Then that affects if we possibly get grant money in it. Right. So it's all many, everything is affected by and everything. And it's so much pressure to put on yourself to be okay now. It's like, well, that's not necessarily in your right. control. And people are like, oh, like things look great from the outside. Snap out of it. And it's yeah. like, you can't snap out of like being on autopilot for two years. It's not easy to just like hmm. go back to who, I don't even know who I was two years ago now. Mm, I'm just yeah. like, I don't even know what that feels like whoever I was when I was like getting a regular paycheck I don't know what that feels like anymore (laughs) (laughs) so going back to early early earlier on was like all these things like popping up that you didn't address it's like dealing with all of this stuff at the same time yeah it's hard (laughs) I can imagine like so where I'm trying to figure out the question that feels like a fair thing to ask (laughs) (laughs) I appreciate that consideration (laughs) In the peeling the layers of what feels like that big ball of things that are too heavy to carry Mm. and you can't figure it all out at once, are there any things that you've been able to just kind of like peel a layer off of? We're not burnt out anymore. I think last year was (laughs) last year was like a really, really tough year just for our our friendship, just because, again, it was like 
we just jumped into this marriage and marriage requires a lot of communication yeah. and a lot of give and take and we weren't doing any of that. <laughs> so we're done with that. What's been helpful for me is like journaling more. Structure and organization is helpful too. Like for the for the most part, a reporter like works on a, a, a newspaper reporter works on their own. Like you you turn your stuff in, your editor edits it or whatever. But when you're out in the field or whatever, a lot of that stuff you're doing on your own. Writing again is is personal. It's a lonely thing. So when you have to now work with other people, things have to be done like at a certain time or like yeah. the organization skills are then like because <laughs> now I have to work with other people and not just myself. Yeah, that was probably the biggest. Um, Breakthrough yeah. was realizing I'm no longer working by myself. I have to work with other people. Yeah, I went to Pointer. Pointer and NABJ had like a uh, NABJ is no longer a part of it, but they had a, a leadership academy that I I got accepted <laughs> into in December. National Association of Black Journalists. Yes, yes, yes. And Pointer is like a um, journalism like institution, teaching institution. They get together and they have a leadership academy because a lot of times people of color are not trained to become managers or anything like that. That's just something you get promoted and then you're like, what do I do now? I learned a lot about personality types. I got to understand my personality type. <laughs> they had it set up to where your coworkers had to like write up like reviews in a way that like your boss would write reviews. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so that was like eye opening to see how yeah. people that I work with view like me or like my organizational skills and it was different from how you saw yourself um it wasn't necessarily different again i avoided a lot of things (laughs) and so having someone else say it or seeing it on paper yeah it it did something else so and then seeing that and play out with other people that other people work in the same way that i work Hmm. or like realizing that there's other people who work like david work or there's other people that works like morgan works so being in that environment like helped me understand like w- what being a manager means mm-hmm. and like what having a leadership role actually means and like how um, to handle that and how to work with other people. Yeah, it's the kind of thing that if you don't, there are just so few examples of like good leadership for anyone. Yeah, you know, you don't, the editors in the newsrooms that I were, I was in were terrible. You're like, not trying to emulate them. No, yeah. <laughs> like. No. (laughs) I think this is a good point to kind of like talk about journalism at large. And I think because you have created something that gives you more autonomy to like recreate some of the rules that that have been handed down, I would really love your perspective. Uh, So us in this role of like media makers, I've done like teaching around dialogue and and using different medium forms. And it's been like journalism adjacent. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so as non-journalists and folks who have not studied it, like, in a formal institution, but know some of the like basic parameters. What we try to offer is subverting the idea of like objective voice. Mm-hmm. Um, if you are saying that this is objective and is therefore true and therefore is not the only truth, right. and then it's not always factual, but two, it is rooted in this subjective position that is right. being proposed as objective. We've like named that as like part of the harm and why discourse is. Is, is a problem. So what we try to center without like knowing what that looks like in traditional journalism spaces uh, is like subject to subject interaction mm-hmm. and like knowing the positionality of who was creating that that medium or that mm. form. That's good. Uh, and so I would love... Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, thank that's you. really good. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So we're not pushing. Um, and so from there, I would love to hear, you said you guys did a lot of workshops on ethics. Uh, what are some of the things you're subverting or trying to like create new paradigms and how journalism operates? And here's the second two-parter. 
what are some things that you learned in those conversations in formal journalism that actually you think should be carried into this newer model? Okay, so for example, in Orlando, I was on a breaking news desk. It might have been at our prime. <laughs> it might have been maybe eight of us on that desk. Hmm. Out of the eight people on the desk, it was myself and my coworker, Desiree. We were the only two black girls on that desk. Our editor was a white man. He had been at the Sentinel for God knows how long. Yeah, <laughs> but, but he was he had been there. Him and like two other people on our on our desk had been there for a long time. He's watched all of his friends lose jobs. <laughs> now that I'm out of it, mm-hmm. <laughs> I can unpack him because mm-hmm. I I couldn't deal with him there. But he he had watched over the years all of his friends lose jobs. When I first visited the Sentinel, I was in college. I was trying to intern there because um, my sister and my nephews and brother-in-law, they lived down there. It might have been 2008 or nine. The newsroom was full. When I finally went back there to work in 2012 or 13, it was a fraction of the <laughs> amount of people there. It was so many empty desks. The majority of the newsroom wasn't even being used. Um, the Tribune was getting ready to do buyouts and all of this other stuff. So that's the nature of like what a newsroom is mm-hmm. like. Everybody is literally on eggshells right. at all times, especially him because he's seen his friends get laid off or bought out or whatever. And he has a family, he has two kids. One of his kids right. actually, I think, was sick in some way and like had, mm-hmm. like he needed insurance and all of this stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, it's much easier to be empathetic when someone isn't your boss. Right, because when I was there, I literally, <laughs> I wanted to choke him <laughs> every day. Um, so that... Added the perspective now of why he literally was a person like, I'm just here. I'm going to do what I'm supposed to do and leave. If I wanted to do any type of project, if I wanted to do anything extra, he's like, I'm not taking any work home. I'm doing what I'm supposed to do. I'm making my boss happy. And that's it. So that's his mentality. But that's because, again, of the trauma that he's experienced throughout that whole time. Now, again, me and uh, Desiree being only two black girls on that on that desk. He mistook us for each other a lot of times. Mm-hmm. There would be times where I wasn't even at work and I would get an email, like, go cover this thing. And I'm like, you know I'm not there. His desk was like how I'm looking at you. <laughs> yep. That's how him and Desiree sat with each other. My desk was like, for my back was against him. And at the time I had like short hair and she had long hair, mm-hmm. all kind of stuff. He still was calling us each other's names. Mm. So that's one thing another thing is um being in orlando it's a it's a strong population of um jamaicans and haitians with the two black girls in the newsroom naturally why not you have to cover the jamaican and the haitian stuff like <laughs> why would we send anybody else so i would have to go cover <laughs> like funerals or instances where people have been killed or or died and i'm talking to these families who are speaking in their native tongue I'm trying to figure out how to talk to them and how yeah. to like talk to them in a way. Because again, if you've ever been to a crime scene, journalists are brutal. Mm-hmm. Right. <laughs> TV journalists is a whole different category of brutal. Like they literally will walk right up to someone who's in deep ass tears and like ask an extremely like rude ass question. I won't say ruin, but literally after that, nobody else can interview them because it's just like yeah. they're so distraught now. So I'm trying to create ways to like interview people on the worst day of their lives and not re-traumatize them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And your boss but, is like, no, go ahead. And yeah, it's yeah. like, yeah, yeah don't yeah. do that because you black, you can like yeah. talk to Jamaicans and shit. And I'm like, I've never even, there's no Jamaicans on the west side yeah. like yeah. <laughs> in my neighborhood. Like, I don't know, I don't know how to speak any of this. So that was like a really hard thing for me too was like being like the token black person that had mm. to go cover these things. Mm. So some of that is just like general you know, run-of-the-mill racism. <laughs> yeah. Um, but other thing from, like, the the formal training 
that you saw as uh, restrictive or destructive? While I was there, I started really, really paying attention to just like uplifting people's voices. It was in that context that I realized that like it's it's challenging to uplift somebody's voice if you can't meet them where they are. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And so I would always try to find someone at the scene that helped me talk to someone or like whatever it is. But it was really important to me to uplift people's voices instead of just reporting on whatever the police had told, had said or, or what the police was saying. It's definitely important, I think, to include like what the police are saying in something, mm-hmm. but that should never be like the sole mm-hmm. source in mm-hmm. a story. Um, yeah. One example I, I was using in a workshop a couple of months ago was John Cass had wrote a story. <laughs> Everything starts off with John Cass wrote a story. You know he's the <laughs> opinion nah, writer for he's for the trip or the, the trip. Yeah. Yeah. Like, he's the one who's fucking up. He's or? the one who called for uh, the National Guard to come in and create a blockade around the South and West Side two uh, years ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, like yep. literally like set up a blockade. Yeah. He's mm-hmm. been problematic for years. John Cass is his name. Oh, but, we on that with you, John Cass. <laughs> also, John Cass. We got John problematic Cass. is yeah. the most polite thing. To say <laughs> yeah, it is. To it is. It is. But the AP. Well, I won't. I won't do that today because. No, I'm not going <laughs> to. All right. I'll do whatever. Man, uh, fuck you, John Cass. What up? <laughs> we here. Ergo Beef is in full effect. Uh, yeah. John know. Cass is on the list. But um, I'll take that on. <laughs> I got you. <laughs> but he, he, wrote, he wrote a story, or an uh, op-ed, rather. It's not a story. He wrote an opinion piece. It was some type of, like, police situation on the West Side where the police were, like, I don't know if they went looking for drugs. They were trying to find somebody or whatever, but essentially the people like fought back against the police and the police didn't shoot them which shouldn't be the and the police breaking didn't shoot news. them right in breaking news the police didn't shoot them the tribune itself wrote the story like an actual reporter wrote the story just based off of a police report you know mm-hmm. this thing happened a conflict between the police and the people in the community people started running the police was chasing after them whatever 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 the police didn't shoot them blah blah, blah. now nobody saw the reported piece like i didn't see that till after i went and looked it up mm-hmm. the first piece i saw was john cass piece and his headline which was like a ridiculous headline i can't remember the name of it right now it's the wild wild west on the west side now like if you uh, there's no like if you the police anything could fucking happen to you over here now and essentially the story was like he sh- they should have shot him essentially Basically. yeah but the, but they can't shoot folks now because we're in this black lives matter era it's all these darn activists right and if, if the police do anything then it's the police fault. That was the, essentially the gist of that story, which is heartbreaking. So now, again, to go back to the West Side, people don't talk about the West Side. People don't write positive stories about the West Side, none of that stuff. People already have, like, whatever their assumptions are about the West Side in general. So for you to write this story with the West Side and stuff being in the headline and the headline being, like, as ridiculous as it was, I don't know if you could pull it up. You might be See able to. Just if you type John Cass West Side, like, it might just wild. pop up. Probably the only article he's written about the West Side. <laughs> On the west side, the street shows no fear of Chicago police. That's what it is. So on the west Which side. Which implies that they, they should. should. Yeah. <laughs> on the west side. The, like, they be giving it up. Like, yo, that's, you just. Yeah. We, <laughs> like, it's wild, wild west. So literally, the west side is so crazy now that you go over there and, like, literally anything could happen to you. And and why is this happening? It's because the activists have talked about the police so much that the police are now scared to defend themselves he didn't interview anybody he didn't go out to the scene well he did go out to the scene and you learn it at the end of the story he like interviews two people or something but imagine like whatever john cast this old white man walking into the hood tomorrow i'm gonna interview Mm y'all about the police situation Mm -hmm. yesterday Mm -hmm. and at the end of the story it's clear that the guys are like fucking with him (laughs) like in their responses i think here's the here's the quote it wasn't no mob but this is the hood man 
This stuff happens in the hood. Not this stuff, I said. It do now, he said. Yeah. And that's the end of the article. And that was the, that's the only quote from anybody in the community. After he didn't wrote all, he didn't quote the police up at the top. He didn't went on Facebook and asked the police all these questions, how they feel about not being able to shoot Nick, shoot, <laughs> shoot people and stuff now. And I don't even know if he named them two people in the story. Yeah. So, um, so that hood, might not even be real. Yeah. Yeah. But at that, but it's again, like a casting call. Uh, yeah. But people, again, going hey, like, Jack. <laughs> exactly. And they, some coppers and pigs was, was running wild. <laughs> <laughs> and I just know that the guys was like fucking with him because it's just like, that's how we yeah, are. Yeah, like, yeah, we right, would do that. that. And so, it do now, shit. Right. And he wrote that in the story as like, this is now what the black is. people think. Like, yeah. and so it is. Yeah, and so, so that's but if that's the first story that you see and you don't see the reported story or you don't see anything else because that story like went viral or something on, on Twitter that was the first story my mom sent me that story it was like the west side rough now like so people mm. that don't have like and people that, see their own image yeah it. so now it's like that's that the west side is now this because mm. John Cass says it is not understanding that John Cass is an opinion writer not understanding what an right. opinion piece means not understanding any of that context it's just this is the headline this is that story and so to me Stuff like that is irresponsible in, yeah. in journalism right. um, as a whole. And people do it all the time. And to your point about media literacy, people don't understand the structures within it anyway. So, like, the idea of what are the ethics for an opinion piece versus a beat story. Like, yeah, and they don't even, I think they may say somewhere in that story or maybe at the top it has opinion or, like, whatever. But there's nothing, like, fully explained. And it's being screenshot and sent around. Yeah. You know, it's not, yeah. Plus, yeah. they got to pay well, so. Exactly. So, you may or may not. But I think, like. Maybe reading it in incognito. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I got one last question. Yeah, for we got to get out of here. <laughs> so, from what I heard of your experience in Orlando, and then bringing up punk ass John Cass, who I'm on that <laughs> with, uh, I almost—I guess I'm like feeding into the fear. I almost stole off a Tribune reporter during the Laquan uh protest he was on some good bullshit but mm-hmm. that story's been told i'll tell that story later but i don't want to mess up your relationships <laughs> so david said that <laughs> but what i heard see i got on oh the my God. <laughs> but, but what i heard um was <laughs> amplification of voice which is something we relate to uh humanizing right mm-hmm. as opposed to like oh black people go cover jamaicans uh, exactly and and then positionality right mm-hmm. so even if john cass was amplifying and trying to humanize like this might not just be your story right like you don't have the position and so though any of those three things or them in relation to each other like what is one example of practice to make sure that you are amplifying humanizing and like accounting for a position and telling stories in a way that you want like future generations to replicate um the tribe really is that most if not all of the stories on the site amplify voices first before anything else one of the stories I did, and I always go back to it, is um, Janaya Green. She she wrote a story about um, black millennials who want to stay in Chicago and then like black millennials who don't have a choice but to leave because they're being priced out. <laughs> that story did so well because it literally like centered three millennials and three different like experiences. One being a millennial who moved back here after being at school and um, wants to live on the west side because that's where she's from. But, like, she's spoiled from school where you had, like, a grocery store mm-hmm. <laughs> that you could walk to where you had, like, nice apartments. Like, you had this, you had that. And then you come back to the west side and you're like, I want to do this. You know, I want to live here. But I'm used to amenities now. And there are none here. So, like, how do I do this thing? Yeah. Um, another millennial who um, is queer and he just didn't feel like there was a queer community here, an accepting and open 
black queer community here. So yeah. now he lives in California in the Bay and is having a ball. Yeah. <laughs> my, my best, one of my best friends um, moved to the Bay and he's gay and he's just like, I can't live in Chicago. Like, it's <laughs> like it, there's no space for black gay men in Chicago or whatever. <laughs> so that story like really like honed into those like people's experiences and people related to it so much because the majority of us do want to stay in our neighborhoods and do want to like, you know, put in the work to help our neighborhoods build. And then we have to like drive up north or drive wherever to go to work and we see our how like like Tanika is doing with her um, folded map project you see how quickly the neighborhoods change and then you get envious like me being in Lincoln Park it's like it was a grocery store on the next corner like like people just going to the grocery store every day and picking up groceries like growing up the grocery store was a trip mm-hmm. it was like on Sundays we going grocery shopping and we gonna find the sales we can't go to this grocery store because they they stuff ain't fresh. So we got to go all the way to Oak Park to go to the grocery store. It was like a legit day mm-hmm. grocery mm-hmm. shopping was. Um, mm-hmm. And white neighborhoods don't deal with that. It's They got six grocery stores to choose from. They want to go to Pete's. They want to mm-hmm. go to Whole Foods. They want to go here. They want to go there. They, they have those options. Um, being able to tell stories that puts you into the world of people to understand like why they make the decisions that they make or why <laughs> they choose mm. to live the life that they live or why mm. their outlook on the world is a is a is different from the next person's like that's the type of stories that we thrive at and that we're trying to tell that's the only way to get you know someone to really relate to the next person is through like seeing that um, similarity me realizing that if I had a judged Morgan off of being from the north side that friendship would have never you know happened um, and now at this point you've grown together right? exactly so we've grown people together that y'all met yeah and we've even anymore. realized that like our family like in the south uh, was like only a few miles away hmm. from each other <laughs> it's those type of connections that a lot of people miss out on just because whatever layer or whatever is presented when you first meet somebody but yeah Uplifting voices and uplifting personal narratives will help people see like the similarities and hopefully relate and hopefully care enough about people to help them either get out of their situation or to help um, heal their situations or repair communities or whatever needs to be done. That's beautiful. Yeah. I think that's that's a that's great, great place to stop. Let's check out real quick. I could go first. Sure. Couple things. One. <laughs> yes. Bring it back. Bring it yeah, back. That was strong. <laughs> <laughs> Did not know I knew how to do that. Two things. I think you and you just spoke to both of them that really resonate to me. One, like being in a, a, a media based duo partnership relationship yeah. and like how we've grown together and making this feels very kindred. And I just feel very kindred to your overall mission and work. But the, the last thing that you, you were just saying really gave language to like what this humanizing storytelling is about. It is about uncovering and giving like language to people's perspective and agency Mm -hmm. um and like that's something i probably could have said or have like articulated or knew i was doing without saying it but like figuring out why people make choices is really what this is about that's absolutely what i was gonna say too it's Mm -hmm. like that's the the whole point of helping someone understand someone's humanity is to understand why they make the choices they make and they do the things they do so that then you can't fall back on dehumanizing rhetoric or, you know, false narratives to explain why someone is the way they are or do the things they do because you have an understanding of what pushed them as an individual to make that choice. Yeah. Thanks for helping us know what we do, too. <laughs> <laughs> I think I helped myself learn what yeah. I do, too. I, I have never... Uh, this probably has been the most, like, personal and intimate, I guess, interview that I've done. Oh. Um and we're talking um, at the moment where, like you said at the beginning, you're kind of pulling back a little bit and having to readjust and think about, yeah. you know, if we did this a year ago when I, I think, first sent a 
interview request and then forgot to respond to your response. <laughs> There's a long line of people who have been in that particular position where they go, you you were at a different place in this too. So yeah. I'm glad we're talking to you in this moment too. No, thank you for being persistent about that. It was nice to, you know, be open and honest and vulnerable. Vulnerable is a word that I'm learning. Hmm. Uh, <laughs> Microphone snaps. In, in this interview um, and being able to share like kind of the, the back end of just like what it means to be a business owner and to be a writer at the same time, yeah, which is our two different mm-hmm. struggles, but kind of one and the same. I do want to say that I definitely wouldn't be able to do any of this without Morgan. We joked about her being from up north and all of this stuff, but she is like a very um, powerful force within the tribe and the tribe literally would not function without her. I literally probably most likely could not function <laughs> without her. So, um, on a personal level and as a writer and everything else, Morgan has helped me advocate for getting paid what I'm actually owed mm. as a freelancer and stuff when I wouldn't, I would never ask those questions. She's very much like, bitch, no, go <laughs> <laughs> tell them that you want this. And I'm like, but they're going to say. Um, so I, I don't want to, you know, joke about that. She she is, you know, a very intricate part of my life and of the tribe. And so I'm very, very thankful for her <laughs> to that. And with the tribe itself, it is challenging and I'm, I'm sure it sounds like I complained a lot in the beginning no, of this thing. No, you were really um, That's allowed, too, also, to talk about the challenges. Yeah, you yeah, know? it is. Um, and so we are very thankful to be doing this work and very thankful for all the um, people who are rocking with us, who supporting. Every time somebody DMs us or, like, tweets at us or sees us out with a tribe shirt on or, I, or someone takes a picture in a tribe shirt or that literally gives us you know, a second win to keep going. Hmm. So super thankful to everybody who's rocking with it. And, um, and yeah, we're just trying to keep building and, and growing and, and scaling it. Scaling is a new word. Scaling it to new places. <laughs> yeah. uh, I have a lot of new words now. Um, we'll see, like, what the next year brings. We're really excited about the fall. The fall seems like a lot of things will come. It, fall always is good to us. I don't know why it is. Um, I won't say always, but it seems like more opportunities happen, yeah. happen in the fall than than otherwise but um i think that's a freelancer thing because i feel the same way like i spend the first six months being like could i have some money could i have some money could right. I have some money and then in september they're like fine yeah, people get right. to work, especially here in, you know we're such a summer city yeah so my, my dad's a comedian and you mm-hmm. would think people like go like that's the hardest time for comedy shows because people are just doing so much so yeah. i think that's just like their attention is all over the for place. creators overall especially in chicago the summer is like yeah no we're at the black party yeah <laughs> well <laughs> we're at the black which had fifty two thousand people at it which yeah. is, 52 crazy. is the number. that's, that's what they're saying yeah. yeah so yeah it's getting bigger and bigger <laughs> Thank you so much for coming through. And, you know, just from where we sit, we're pulling for y'all. Yeah. Thank you. We're, we're, you know, we're, we're pulling see, for y'all. See the work you do. Where can folks find you and the site and the ways you want to be found? The tribe.com is the is our uh, website. Two eyes. Two eyes. Two eyes. You see it? Two eyes. <laughs> the tribe. T-H-E-T-R-I-I-B-E.com. You can subscribe to our newsletter on the homepage. We also are on social media. The tribe on Twitter is at the tribe on Facebook. And it's at the tribe Chicago on Instagram, we're trying to get at the tribe on Instagram. Somebody has it. Um, they won't it. let it go. We we found a person that has it. They just stopped communicating with us. We were Do you want them to be internet bullied? <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> we don't have like we we're not not like on like a Beyonce. Yeah, like yeah, we can't yeah, do like yeah, a yeah, right, I'm like, thing. I but a very like... well thought out, empathetic bullying. It would be nice if you know <laughs> everybody message them. Go ahead. We, we just started them and ask yeah. if, if kindly if we can have. Hey, to try. this this would mean so much to the community. <laughs> to whom it may concern. Right. <laughs> on behalf of my good friend over at the tribe, we would we would love if you would reconsider. And, <laughs> Sincerely. Um, we have on our website where you can find out where to pick up a tribe guide. We got some events coming up in the fall. Stay tuned for those. We got one with the Black Smithsonian slash National Museum of, of African American History and Culture. Morgan has a film, Unapologetic, her and Ashley O'Shea okay. are doing that. Very um, excited. Yeah, 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 that's going to be super dope. And tune in to Ergo Radio because they, oh. they got it going. Look at that. <laughs> <laughs> We're at Ergo Radio. I'm at Ergo Kiss. Damon underscore AF. And we'll be back next week with another person reshaping the culture of our city for the more equitable and creative. Much love to the people. Peace. Hey, Dame. What's up, Kiss? I want you to meet my friend Miriam here. Hey, Miriam. Nice to meet you. Nice to meet you, too. Miriam is my oldest friend in the world. The whole world. And she is a devoted podcast listener. Are you? I am. Oh, well, that's love. I don't even just, I don't mean our podcast. I just mean podcasts in general. Okay. I love podcasts. How, how do you usually find your podcast? What do you listen to them on? <sighs> the iTunes mm. app. Yeah, I know. Very basic. You're not thrilled with it? It isn't the best. Well, the good news is we actually have a recommendation for you. Oh, yeah? Well, Ergo is sponsored by Overcast. It's an independent podcast app that embraces the open world of podcasting instead of locking it down. Man, it's for the people. No exclusives, no premium content, no paywalls. Just a great podcast app for everyone. Get it free in the App Store where you get all the other things. Yeah. You going to check it out? Sounds amazing. Cool. We won you over. Look how effective this ad is. <sighs> yeah. Pay, pay us more money, folks. <laughs> that's that's advertising in action. You see? Works. <laughs> see, that's how good we are at selling things. We're doing this. Hey, yo, Harold, hit me up, man. I am an advocate and I can market your stuff because look how great we just marketed Overcast. We just gave an ad for them and an ad for us. I think it's time to get the fuck out of here. Let's do it.